Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to be able to bring to you February 2016's meeting of the Whitechapel Society 1888. Chris Jones with Bruce and Florence, Busting the Conspiracy, in which Chris gives us his take on Bruce Robinson's book, We All Love Jack, and takes questions from the audience, including one from the publisher of the book The Diary of Jack the Ripper, and the current owner of the Maybrook Diary, Robert Smith. So let's jump right in and let Tony do the introduction. Okay, so on to tonight's speaker. Um, as Sue was saying, it's terrific that um, Chris was able to come and step in at such short notice tonight. Um, and he's actually no stranger to the society. Um, back in 2007, he arranged the uh, trial of James Maybrick, um, and we believe that he was found guilty. Um, he'll update me if I got that wrong. Um, he's also written a chapter in the Whitechapel Society's own book, uh, the Jack the Ripper, Little Book of Jack the Ripper, and that was covering the uh, Jack the Ripper letters. Um, he's written a book himself about uh, Maybrick, called Maybrick A to Z. It's an excellent book. If you haven't got a copy, I recommend it. Um, and he's an expert on Florence Maybrook, which is how he met um, Kate Calhoun. Um, moving on to tonight's presentation, um, the title of the presentation is Bruce and Bruce and Florence uh, Busting the Conspiracy. Um, as some of you may be aware, there was a book written by uh, Bruce Robinson called They All Love Jack. I'm not sure how many have actually read it, um, but this is how Amazon described it. Rarely has a book of Jack the Ripper been written with such visceral anger at Jack, at Ripperology, the establishment, and the police cover-up. This could be a fascinating talk. Please give a big Whitechapel welcome to Chris Jones. Okay, thank you very much. About six weeks ago, I bought some train tickets to come down and have a nice weekend in London and listen to my good friend Kate, my ex-good friend Kate, um, but I'm very happy to do it. Although a lot of what I'm going to say is actually features in the magazine, so I hope you haven't read that yet, uh, otherwise you'll already see some of the points I'm going to make. Just on Kate herself, I, w- I would say um, Kate was genuinely upset that she couldn't speak here tonight. She has got a few family issues. Her mother isn't very well. She's not the sort of person who does drop out at the last minute. So um, I'm sure when she does speak, you really enjoy it because she knows her stuff. She's a fantastic historian. Also, a word on Bruce. Um, I've never met the gentleman, but I've had a, a whole series exchange of emails with him. And I actually emailed him to say I was speaking here tonight if he wanted to come along and give me a hard time. And he sent me a little reply, which I'll read to you. Dear Chris, sounds intriguing, but I'm leaving for LA on the next train, and I will be away all February. It would be interesting to discuss the Maybrick mob, and maybe we will collide. Sounds a bit collide in spring. So uh, I have had some conversations with him, and I've actually raised some of the things I'm going to say tonight, because... The book, some of you have read it, it's a a weird book in many, many ways. When you first read it, the language hits you big time. I've never read a serious historical work where he uses such profanities, you know, the F word and even the C word and various other things that you wouldn't normally see in such a serious historical work. 
cover permeate the whole of the whole of the whole of the work. And I think you have to read it a couple of times because I think he does make some good points, but I think he also talks a lot of rubbish as well. And I'm going to try and balance that out and say that some of the things that he does say, which I think are very useful, anything that makes us think again I think is useful, certainly on the letters, um, but some of the things he says on, on the Maverick saga, which I'm particularly interested in, are just factually not true at all. Um, I'm also going to assume that not everybody in the room has read the book. And I'm also going to assume that not everybody knows everything about the Matrix. So if I say some things which some of you know inside out and back to front, I apologise, but I'm just trying to ensure that everybody's along with me tonight. Oh. Alright then, now I did do a handout and some of the, the information Some of the information on the slides is directly on, on handouts and some of it isn't because I needed to, I couldn't put it on, on, on one of the slides. Uh, this particular one is, what I'm going to do basically is run through very briefly his core ideas. And what he does, as you can see here, he names Dr. James Maybrick, who some of you will well hear of because he's the guy who allegedly wrote the diary, allegedly claiming to be Jack the Ripper, but he names his more famous brother from the time. And there he is there. That's a picture of him in his later years when he was actually the mayor of Ride in the Isle of Wight. And you can see him actually wearing his, uh, his official gowns as Lord Mayor of, of the town. He was uh, a guy who in his day was one of the most famous singers um, in Britain. As far as he's forgotten now, people don't realise what a high profile that the guy actually had and the level of coverage he would have had. You know, in, in, in today's terms, he would have been an A-list celebrity. He was that big. And although we've largely forgotten him now, his most famous song, The Holy City, is still quite widely sung. And if you actually Google it and you go onto YouTube, you can see a whole range of people, including Charlotte Church, just recently doing a version of The Holy City, and it's still quite widely sung in, in, in many churches, particularly Catholic churches. He's named by Bruce Robinson as the Ripper, and he makes a couple of other quite key core points in his book. Number one, about the letters. Now, a large number of letters were sent to the police and newspapers, but these are particular ones that were sent to the police, claiming to be written by Jack the Ripper. Now, I'm sure all of you know a little bit about the Dear Boss letter and the From Hell letter. And for a long, long time, they've been largely dismissed by people involved in Ripperology as just being the work of cranks. Now, I would say, opinion, that the best contribution that the book does make is that he focuses on these letters in great detail, and he says, hang on a second, maybe some of them were actually written by the Ripper himself. Um, not everybody would agree with that, I'm sure, but I have to say as well, there's another guy, I think Robert knows him as well, the guy I met in Chester, who's also doing an awful lot of work on these letters, and he will claim, and I'm not allowed to say anymore because he made me sign a little bit of legal paper, but he will claim quite specifically that the letters have been got a, a, a clear Maybrick link in them. And I have to say that having read his, seen his work as well, I find some of that quite 
Uh, it's not convincing necessarily, but it's certainly something that needs a serious reading and thought to. He points to that famous sketch, which I'm sure you've all seen, that featured in the, the Daily Telegraph, saying that it looked like his guy. Um, uh, lots of people claim that, haven't they? You'll see that. You see all the books have that picture in, and they say it looks like their particular favourite candidate. So I'll leave that. But he makes a couple of very important lines about Freemasonry and the establishment. And he argues very much that the murders, and not just the five chemical murders, but a series of other murders, have a quite a clear Masonic ritual link to them. Now, some people have instantly just dismissed that. And I would say again, before you just dismiss it and put it in the dustbin of history, have a little look at some of what he said. Read some of what he said. Because that's the one section of the book I think where there's a lot of depth to his research. And he does make the point that the Freemasonry at that time dominated the establishment. So if we look at the Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, he was a Freemason. Well, he claims he was. I'm, 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 that's not my area of expertise, but that's what he claims. He claims that the Home Secretary Matthews was, but Charles Warren, the key top guy in the police force dealing with this, was, and of course some of the other characters directly linked with the Maybrick case were. Either way, they were a large cohort, whether it included the Prime Minister or not, I'm not sure, but certainly a large cohort of the very top of British society were part of that organisation. But what he's, what he's saying isn't so much it's an anti-Freemason thing, he's saying that these people were looking after number one, they were looking after themselves, and they became worried, concerned, alarmed, that this guy who was doing these murders wasn't a complete crazed outsider, but he was somebody on the inside. And as a result, according to him, they went to great lengths to cover it up. Oops, I'm wrong way. Some of the other points he makes, he says that the, there weren't just the five murders, I've already said that, but there were a large number of other murders. Um, in fact, he uses the phrase, apart from Mackenzie and Cole, maybe Martha Tabram, there were likely many more, but he, of course he lived long after 1888 into the 1920s. And he also pinpoints two other murders, one of a young boy named Johnny Gill in Bradford, and one of a young girl in Somerset, who he also said were killed by Jack the Ripper. Now, his argument again, and I'm, I'm, once again, this, maybe this is something that you can discuss in another meeting rather than tonight because it's beyond really the scope of my talk, but I do need to talk a little bit about it because if we deal with the, the Johnny Gill one, for instance, he was a young lad who was killed brutally, he was raped, he was then cut up, and his legs were taken off him, and then when the police arrived, all his body parts were found except for his penis, which was missing. Now you could say, well, that's clearly a sort of sexually motivated, crazed individual. Robinson argues the case that this person was doing, once again, a Masonic ritual, and he points to uh, Greek mythology where some of their ideas are sort of replicated and how they come from originally, and he talks about the story of Osiris, who was cut up. <laughs> who was later found, reassembled by Isis, brought back to life, and everything existed except for his penis. Now, you could say, well, that's just a silly story, that's just a coincidence, but what he does in the book, 
On numerous occasions, he, he pinpoints these particular sort of things. Um, so, just trying to give you a little flavour of what he says. You'll all recognise, I expect, the picture. That's a picture of Mitre um, Square. And there's the, the dead body of Catherine Eddowes. Now, I'm not going to go through all the killings. That would be ridiculous, and I don't have the time. But I'm just going to just mention again that particular one. Because, once again, he uses that as evidence, he claims, to show that there was a Masonic ritual to the killings. For instance, although she was savagely mutilated, and we know that uh, a wound was on her left kidney was taken, she had on her cheek the two inverted Y's. Now, of course, if those of you following the Maybrick saga, that's been claimed in the past to be an M for Maybrick, he says they resemble two Masonic compasses. Now, once again, I'm not saying I agree with that, because I think some of what he says, they say, is a bit dubious. But I'm just saying that that's where he's coming from. He also then talks about the, the, the writing that was placed on the wall on Goulston Street, which I'm sure you all know about, and, and the very famous line about the Jews, spelled Jew, J-E-U-E-W-S. And once again, he says that has a Masonic link, and it's linked with the three Jewish assassins. Uh, now, once again, that's a serious thing that's open for question. And, you know, he doesn't provide a huge amount of evidence, but he does show that that term was in use at that time. Something that Paul Bay actually said wasn't the case, but he quite clearly shows that it was the case. Now, it doesn't mean to say that that's what it means, but I'm just simply trying to show you what he says. And also what he says is that, although Mary Kelly's often seen by many, but not everybody, as the last of the river killings, he said she wasn't. They kept on happening, they kept on happening. But what the police did, they never classed them as ripper killings. So they never feature. In fact, in some cases, they were deliberately squashed as ripper killings because he didn't want it, they didn't want that particular story to run and run. They wanted it buried. And they thought they had stopped it with the death of James Maybrick, according to him. Not going to go through all these things. These are on your on your on your list there. If you want to look at them, these are little extracts from the book. What what, what makes the book quite difficult to read is that it's not, it's not a sort of clear chronological story. He jumps around from topic to topic, from theme to theme, and you have to read different bits of the book to pull and glean this information together. But obviously, he says he's one of the key things. Number two, he's a highly intelligent psychopath. And in fact, he makes a link a little bit with uh, Ted Bundy in modern terms in America. Um, that this guy wasn't then, as I say, just oh, he was clearly crazy in some ways, but he was actually a very highly intelligent man who was well motivated, who had a clear hatred of the establishment and Freemasonry. Now. This is one of the, at this stage, I'm not really telling an awful lot what I think, but I'm, I, some of this I do find a little bit difficult because why would a man who was such a, um, a hated the establishment be so much part of it? And why would he stand for mayor? Some of those things don't really stack up. Also, if he hated Freemasonry, why was he so prominent in it? Why was he a member of so many lodges? Why did he go to so many meetings? Why did he push the floors? Once again, it doesn't quite sort of, to me anyway, be consistent, but as I said, at this point, I'm just giving you a flavour of what he said. And this is the bit that I'm more interested in, and this is the bit that's going to be the main focus of my talk, is this little assertion here. Is that he, that's a younger picture on the left-hand side of, of himself, framed his brother James for being Jack the Ripper, 
they murdered James by giving him an overdose of poison with the help of his other brother Edwin and a woman called Mrs. Briggs who was a friend plus Nurse Yap plus the local constabulary helping covering the whole thing up it gets a bit more convoluted than that but you can begin to see it doesn't totally stack together and then to bury the deed so no he doesn't get caught he then blames Florence who's James's wife now there's a lot of ifs and buts for this and I think the trouble with, the, with, with a lot of these stories is that if you have a candidate, you've got to make sometimes the facts fit. And if you haven't got the facts, sometimes you've got to invent one or two. And he's getting a little bit more on this particular line. You know, in, in science, you're supposed to test your hypothesis, not try and prove it. Falsification. Here he's just going out of his way to put forward statements, some of which have very little substance in fact, to support his more general theory in my opinion. Um, but there you can see there's a quote directly from the book. Michael Maybrick framed his brother James as Jack, poisoned him, and then framed Florence for the murder. I have no doubt, according to him, at the time of the outrage, that Michael's rules was believed, and the authorities willingly brought into it. <coughs> well, that's his view. One of the things that it does do, though, the book, and some of you won't like this in this room. I think I'll have a drink. <laughs> Is I think it resurrects the debate about the diary. Now the reason why I say that is that Bruce Robinson says that he can prove that the diary is an old document. Now one of the biggest problems with the book is he doesn't actually say or provide any of that evidence. In fact, one of my emails to him was to say that exact point. And I said I was particularly disappointed that that wasn't there. Keith Skinner, with one of his researchers, emailed me back and what he said what he thinks he might be doing is when he has his paperback version, putting that piece of information in the second book, maybe the boost sales, I don't know. But that's a huge omission in the book because there is a view, well there's two views, well there's lots of views in the diary, but if we, if we just crystallise them down to two main views, is that one of them is that it's a modern forgery, specifically referencing the, the tin matchbox empty, which some of you will know very well, because that didn't appear until 1987, so many people think it's a straightforward modern forgery. But if it's an old document, as Bruce Robinson says it is, and he can prove, then, how did the person who wrote that diary know that particular line? Now that opens up a can of worms, which once again I'm not going to talk to you the debate tonight. But I think that's quite an important point. Although, Bruce Robinson doesn't say that James wrote the diary. He says it was written by his brother Michael. And it was written by Michael to frame James. It was, part, it was a forgery, but an old forgery, not a modern forgery. Either way, I would like him to come clean on that piece of evidence, which he first mentioned back in 2007 at the event I organised in Liverpool, and has been sitting on now for eight, nine years. It's about time we saw that evidence. A lot of people in this room I know would like to see it. I certainly would like to see it. So a little bit, just a very brief snapshot for James and Florence, for those of you who don't know the full story, and it will be a very brief snapshot. James was a cotton broker from Liverpool and he lived a sort of a, a pretty wild life in many ways. He, he spent half his time in Liverpool and half his time 
in America, living in different cities, and we've uh, we followed him around this. We've been to Norfolk, Virginia, where he lived for a while, and we've been various other places where he stayed on the trail of him and Florence, trying to get information from the various primary sources that exist. Um, in 1880, when he was coming back from America, he met a very young American woman, uh, born in Mobile, Alabama. She was at the time only 17. As you can see, there was quite an age difference because he was 42. And they got married very quickly in St. James's Church in Piccadilly, which is, if you haven't been well worth a visit, by the way, it's a beautiful church. Um, I actually think it was a marriage of love, to be honest, because he was a guy who lived a very like carefree life, drinking an awful lot. A lot of lady friends, so why would he suddenly do it? That? It was speculation there. But either way, for the first few years of their life, things are pretty happy. And then they settle, they leave America completely and they settle in Liverpool. And some of you will know some of you will know this house very well. It's the house called Battle Creek, which is owned by Paul Dodd. And in 2007, we actually had a little tour of it for those of you who were there. And the house is in two parts. Paul Dodd, who owns it, lives in this side there. And this side is, a, is now into flats. And that's the room in which James Maybrick actually died. They, they, the Maybricks lived in the left-hand side of that house there. And they called it Battle Crease. Um, as I say, it's still it's, it's flats today, but downstairs in the basement, it's a bit of a mess with bulldogs and all sorts of gear down there, but it, it's, uh, you can still go around and still see the exact layout as it was, with the wash basin where the flypapers were and everything. So it's, it's an interesting place. They lived there. First few years of their life, everything was going okay. Then around about 1887, things started to go wrong big time. Florence found out that James had another woman. Now, some people think, that she may have been married, but there's no marriage certificate, but he certainly had a, a close liaison with a person from Liverpool. That was, that was established and it was recognised in the trial, although no name was given. But names have been out there, and some of you will know them. So she was shocked by that, but not only that, but the age difference was beginning to kick in. And one of the reasons for the age difference beginning to kick in is because this is a guy who was a massive user of drugs. And when I mean drugs, he was using Arsenic and strychnine, big time. Arsenic, in its day, was a sort of cross between sort of Viagra and cocaine, and he was a guy who relied upon it very heavily. He was taking up to five doses of it a day. That would be enough to give you about a quarter of a grain of arsenic. Now, two grains of arsenic would be enough to kill you. So it was a sizable dose of arsenic, which would do anybody in this room not very. It wouldn't make you very well at all. But he, was, he took it originally because he had problems with malaria, but he got addicted to it. It was beginning to show in his face, it was beginning to show in his demeanour, it was beginning to show in his behaviour, which has been more erratic. So, the age difference, the drug use, the wear and tear on his body, the relationships which he had, and then Florence had, really brought the marriage strike out to almost breaking point. 27th of April, 1889, James becomes ill. Now this is quite an important little bit of the story, and this letter is of quite importance to the talk because it's something that features heavily in the in the Bruce Robinson book. On the 27th of February, he gets on well, the 26th, the day before actually, he gets a parcel from London. It comes from the post to Liverpool, and it's known as the London Medicine. And the London Medicine 
he takes the following day, Saturday morning, and he becomes severely ill. He has a terrible reaction to it. He then goes out to a horse racing on the Wirral, it's soaking wet, and he becomes even worse. And then the following day, he takes another big hit of this medicine, which once again puts him in a terrible state. Now, what is this medicine? We're not 100% certain, but all the pointers look to it being strychnine. And not just an ordinary dose of strychnine, a massive dose of strychnine. If you go into the books on poisoning, it will tell you that if you have an overdose of strychnine, that, and by the way, small doses are still used today, isn't it? In that letter, you'll see there's a thing called Nux Vomica, which you can actually buy and go onto the internet tonight and buy some. It comes from the poison nut tree in India, which might give you a bit of a clue why you shouldn't buy it, but it's still quite widely used in homeopathic remedies for indigestion and people who've got nervous issues, so it's still quite widely used. So a small amount of strychnine in that, so he was taking that anyway, but he took something that had a massive effect. Now this is a guy who's used to drugs. This is a guy who's used to asking, he's used to strychnine. So for it to have knocked him the way he did, it must have been a real big hit. Now this episode's important because this is when he starts to become ill. He dies within three weeks. So what, who takes the blame for this? Bruce Robinson says that this poison came from his brother Michael. For that he provides zero evidence. No evidence at all, he just, it's his assertion, which he doesn't support. The, at the time of the trial, the prosecution said this is the first time that Florence started to kill James. Now, let's be clear on this. Who ordered the medicine? James. Who took it? James. Who became ill with it? James. Did he take another lot? Yes, he did. After his second lot that he took on the Sunday, his wife Florence actually took it off him and poured it down the sink, got rid of it. Now, if she was the murderer, the prosecution claimed, why would she get rid of this poison? It's an absurd thing to do, inconsistent. I don't think Michael killed James. I certainly don't think Florence killed James. I think James killed James himself. His lifestyle, his use of drugs, caught up with him big time. It's as simple as that. This letter is actually in the Home Office. This isn't the original letter, it's a copy. Now, in this letter, and you've got transcript of what it says in, in, the, in the little thing, uh, the Dear Lucia letter, it tells you a little bit. I'll come back to it a little bit later on. But you'll... He's in the letter, he's writing to his brother Michael, saying, look, he feels terrible, everything's going wrong. You know, he's, he doesn't know what's wrong with him. He's seriously, he, don't, he doesn't know what's wrong with him. And he's going to be dead soon. And he was right about that. And then he, he actually does die. Well, I've actually got people that He dies on the 11th of May. And this is one episode. I'm not going to go through all the ins and the outs of the trial. That, that would be take forever. That was a subject of another talk that I've given you in 2010. So I'm afraid you missed. So I'm not through all that. Although I think you can still actually see it on the website if I, if I remember, possibly. Uh, one of the key things that happens is that Florence has a bottle. I just, I've actually got one. Not the original. Otherwise, Lindsay would have to meet you. This is it. This is the bottle here. Not the original bottle, but this is exactly what it looks like. Valentine's meat juice. And it, it, it was supposed to be the super duper cure-all. 
and it was made in Richland, Virginia. And in fact, we went to the actual place where it came from in Richmond to do a little bit of research on it. And I'm a member of the Valentine Museum, they keep me in touch every so often. And this this is contained the meat juice. Now, he this is a key episode, really. This is what counted against Florence at a, at a trial. James Maybrick was in the main bedroom there in the bed. There was a nurse there because Florence at this point wasn't being trusted. So there was a nurse there. Florence comes into, takes an open bottle of this and goes into the inner bedroom because what basically happens is that James and Florence were sleeping in separate beds at this time. But obviously because he was ill, he was in the main bedroom. She goes into the, into the other room and puts in a white powder. She then rather sneakily brings it back and puts it back on the table. James never took that powder, but the bottle was taken and was analyzed and was found to contain arsenic. In fact, the white powder that she put in was arsenic. Now, that didn't look too good for her, especially the manner in which she did it. She says, that she did it at the request of James. And I believe it, to be honest. And we've done quite a bit of research in Norfolk, Virginia, and we found from one of the witnesses who was, who was uh, a, a black manservant when they lived there, who said that James quite often asked Florence to put powder in his food and his drinks. So, it's, uh, to me, I don't think she did particularly anything wrong, but you can imagine at the time of the trial, she was, it looked, it was a real, it was, it was the worst thing she could have done, to be honest, and it counted against her heavily. So we went to trial. There's the trial. If you've never been to Liverpool, St. George's Hall, you can actually go to the scene of the trial. It used to, it's a very, very small room. It's not an awful lot bigger than this room here. Um, it's now like a little museum, because they don't use it anymore. They've got brand new um, criminal courts in Liverpool. So you can go around it, and there's the stairs going to the dock. You can actually go down the stairs into the folding cells where Florence was kept. So if you've never done it, it's well worth the visit. Florence was there on trial for the best part of a week. You can see the judge there. Well, there he is there. I'll get it right. Try to press the middle thing here. The judge there, and then there's Florence there in the dock. And in front of them, there are the lawyers. Now, why is that important? It's important because we're going back to this dear blue chalette. Excuse me. start of the trial, Bruce Robinson savages, I mean when he means savage, he absolutely goes for Florence's solicitor, Lord Charles Russell's, he goes right when you've never seen anything. He calls, her a whole, he calls him a whole host of quite vicious names to be quite honest, and says that her own solicitor went out of his way to get Florence found guilty. And one of the things he alleges is this business about this crucial letter. He says right at the start of the trial, the main prosecuting guy, Addison, has given his speech, 
And all of a sudden, Charlie Stewart, Tony Russell, the uh, volunteer solicitor, leans over and says something to him. Robinson says there was a huddle. This is part of his big conspiracy. And they had a meeting in which the Blucher letter was suppressed because the Blucher letter indicated that the person who administered the drugs could have actually been Dr. Fuller from London. Now, I know a little bit about this trial, <laughs> promise with you. It's not in any of the papers, it's not in any of the books, not in any of the transcripts of the trial, it's just not there. Any, anyway, his, one of his key assertions that Robinson says that this happened, it's just not mentioned. So he says, uh, there is a newspaper in New York that mentions it, called The World. There it is. I tracked it down. Um, he's right in to say that the, the this pollution letter was discussed, but doesn't say when, and it was suppressed. How can this obscure journalist from New York knew about it? Everybody knew about it. Because it'd been in the Liverpool press for weeks. Anderson says, at the time, he said, oh, Lord Russell has just asked me to ask the witnesses to leave because they shouldn't be here because try I'm making my remark, opening remarks, they shouldn't be here. So I think they should leave. And they all do, apart from Michael maybe. He should have left it, well, really, but he stayed. So, Bruce Robinson's made this key assertion and let me tell you, he's wrong. He's not even a little bit wrong, he is wrong, full stop. The evidence as it exists simply does not only not, not support him, it clearly contradicts what he's saying. Even this newspaper which he refers to doesn't support him. And in fact, if you read the next few editions, which I've also got but I couldn't put in here, they are full of praise of Lord Russell, they call him the hero of Liverpool. He's turned the trial in Florence's favour, which is actually what happened. She started off as the villain, and during the course of the week, people began to believe her, and it was a huge shock when she was actually found guilty by the jury. Lord Russell didn't go out of his way to find her guilty. Bruce, I'm afraid, you're wrong. He then, some of this is a bit technical, but you just bear with me in this. One of the other key witnesses was that the, the other historians would say that Florence, had, over a period of time, was gradually poisoning James. And one of the ways she did it was putting poison arsenic, which of course, meat and drink to him anyway, he'll really like it anyway, but meat and drink in his food, which he took into his office in a pan. So they tested the pan. Dr. Paul was one of the witnesses for the defense. And Russell's, uh, and, and Robinson says that, once again, this was part of his manipulation to get a guilty verdict. By putting arsenic right to the forefront of the jurors' mind. It's not true. Dr. Paul was, was, shown, was called to show that arsenic was actually in the base of the pan. So if you tested it, you would find arsenic, which the, which the, the prosecution had, because it was already there. So, verdict, I'm sorry, you're wrong again. In fact, all the, the books that exist, the Stratford Christie books, some of you know well, quite clearly say it, it was uh, something that, that Russell had done, which was in the defense's favor. And when, he, when Russell questions, 
Paul, he said, he said, was it, was it, I think it's a case of gastroenteritis. The post-mortem appeals, not sure it was not set up by arsenic. So once again, Bruce's key assertion is not supported by the facts. Fly papers, some of you won't know what the fly papers are. Fly, arsenic was, was a very common substance that was put in huge numbers of different household products. One of them was fly papers, which are used obviously for the killing of flies. And there had been a couple of famous murder trials that had been involved in two women, Flanagan and uh, Higgins. Higgins, thank you. And, and of course, uh, the, the Berry woman, who was also hung. And they had extracted by soaking these fly papers, arsenic, which they then given to their uh, husbands to claim the insurance money. And it had been a big, huge story, as you can imagine. So Florence has got fly papers, yes. She was soaking them, yes. Another big thing that counted against her. But she was using it for cosmetic purposes. And Robinson says that that was never brought out in the trial. Yes, it was. He called two defence witnesses to show that it was. He's simply wrong. One of them was a key was a hairdresser called James Valetti, who clearly said, and it's there for you, there's, there's the quote directly from it. It reminds you of a question by Russell. Valetti told the court, arsenic is used a good deal in the hair for some purposes and for cosmetic reasons. So one of the, another one of his assertions about the trial. Uh, Russell didn't show that James Maybrick was a habitual user of arsenic. Not two again. He had, a, he had a, the chemist, who I mentioned before, Heaton, who would supply James Maybrick with his pick-me-up, which contained arsenic. He actually brought in a former Lord Mayor of Liverpool, Sir James Poole. And, he, and who said that James Maybrick admitted to him he uses poisonous subjects. So he did have people come from America, it's true, but he also had local people. Robinson, what Robinson says in his book, I'm, just, I'm sorry Bruce, you're wrong. That's not what happened. James Maybrick was killed by his brother. Well, now we're in the realms of opinion, my opinion, well, I don't believe it will stop, but I put highly unlikely there. Um, you've got this notion that, that it wasn't just Michael doing it, because Michael was living in London. Michael had to have a team of people in Liverpool who were working for him, including James's brother Edwin, who were, and they were, for, by all accounts, greatest of friends. They worked together very closely and been friends for many years. Plus some close family friends, plus some servants. It just doesn't really all add up. So, as I said to you before, why was he why was he ill? Why was he dying? Just before he actually did die, his brother Edwin told Captain Irwin, oh, he's killing himself with damn stripping. There's evidence after evidence after evidence what was going on. That James was slowly but surely poisoning himself to death. His body just couldn't take any more of it. He'd been doing it now for 20, 30 years and he was on the point of collapse with it. There he is, there's, there's Lord Russell himself. As I say, Robinson's assault on him is brutal and sustained. 
Charles Russell, according to Robinson, was a Freemason as well. Uh, he was part of this conspiracy. Now, this is a guy who's going to hold the highest legal post in the land in the future. He was a highly respected guy. He wasn't. Oh, he was a conservative. He was also. He supported some of the. Some of the, some of you will know some of the Irish nationalists. So he was a man of progressive ideas. The idea that he could be part of this massive cover-up conspiracy just, just doesn't hang together. He made mistakes. There's no doubt about it. And I'll talk about one of those mistakes a little bit briefly later on. But overall, I think the idea that he went out of his way to get Florence found guilty, not true. In fact, the rest of his life, he continually put pressure on the home, various home secretaries who came and went to try and get Florence released from prison. He even visited her in prison on a couple of occasions. Hardly the, the, the behavior of a guy who went out of his way to find her guilty. Um, and he quite clearly says in, in a, a letter he wrote to the Home Secretary in 1895, Florence made it ought never to be convicted and the continued imprisonment is an injustice which ought to be promptly to be ended. Now he actually died before she was released from prison, but he, he put up a long sustained high level pressure campaign. So Bruce, sorry, you're wrong. What he's done a little bit more solid ground, I think, is that he looks at, the, at Michael Maybrick and saying that uh, he suddenly, he's at the top. And then all of a sudden, a couple of years later, he's not performing live anymore. Um, and he, he sort of airbrushed out of musical textbooks and musical dictionaries and archives. And he, he does provide some evidence to support that statement. But he doesn't disappear. He actually becomes elected mayor on five occasions. Now that's not a guy who's just going off disappearing, is it? Being elected mayor on five occasions. His funeral was one of the biggest ever seen on the Isle of Wight. Chris Robinson says that his, his friend that he wrote with because um, Michael Maybrick wrote the music, but the words were actually written by a guy called Fred Weatherly, um, who I got interested in with this, this little cul-de-sac down there. He, he actually did a song specially to him, a friend of mine, and you can just see, he's got there, dedicated to the memory of Stephen Adams. Stephen Adams was Michael Maybrick's stage name. So, Bruce suggests that Fred Weatherly couldn't have anything more to do with him. Not true. He says in his autobiography, Piano and Garden, that he wrote to him continually. That he met him. He wrote, he wrote a special song dedicated to him. While Bruce Robinson, uh, but why might have made him stop singing, I don't know. Maybe his voice went, maybe he had enough of it. There's a large number of people even today who get to the top and then suddenly disappear quite quickly again, don't they? So it's not unusual with that. So, why was Florence found guilty? Well, this is not really the scope of this, but I've already hinted at why. The, 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 you got the... There's Flanagan and Higgins there. There they are, the two women who were convicted and found guilty of using arsenic extracted from fly papers. There's a letter that Florence wrote um, to a guy that she did have an affair for, an affair with, and that affair counted against her massively. 
a lot of double standards in this transition, as you can surely imagine. That, that James Baker probably had several, probably many um, intimate liaisons. Florence had one for one night in a hotel in London, and it just counted against her massively. Uh, and the judge was savage about it, and uh, I won't go through all the quotes, but he tore into it. The fact that anybody can commit, any woman who can commit adultery can commit murder. Well, that's a big leap. So in a way, what she was convicted on, rather, was more the moral, rather than the actual legality of the criminal law. And she made a big mistake, and this is where Charles Russell is culpable, she made a statement to the court. Now, in, in those days, the accused couldn't give evidence directly like they can today. But she decided to make a statement. And in the statement, there she is, she admitted that she took the bottle and put powder in it. She admitted it. And that was a massive mistake. And afterwards, the jury said that was a key turning point in the case against her. That they weren't sure, but the fact that she did put arsenic in a bottle and did give it to James, although James never took it, was the thing that got her convicted. Either way, what probably got her convicted was that it was a time when they, this was, these were all men. The judge was uh, not a very nice guy, very anti-woman. His, his whole summing up was totally biased against. She was a victim of her gender and a time of double standards. Nothing to do with Michael Maybridge. Although he wasn't a very nice man either. I've had a, a few big pot shots at uh, Bruce. Because I think on some of the things he says, he's just wrong. On the Florence Baker trial in particular. I'm going to balance that up slightly by saying, I do think though within his book, he does make some interesting points that are worthy of much deeper discussion, and I think one of those pertains to the letters themselves. And I think, you know, I, I would suggest maybe this is a topic for a future meeting of, of the White Apple Society, an in-depth look at some of these letters. I haven't got time again to look at all of them, but I'm just going to pick up one of them very briefly. Some of you will recognize that straight away. From the slogging town of Brum, and at the back of what I did, I've, I've actually put a transcript of what it actually says. If you can't read it, and there's a picture of it there. Robinson says that the letters, many of the letters are genuine, and they were aimed specifically at the police. Sir Charles Warren in particular, and he was laughing at him. He uses the phrase, funny little games. Uh, remember his, his core argument that Michael Maybrick was a psychopath, but he was an intelligent psychopath. He was having fun doing this. He was killing people on one hand, which he enjoyed, but he also enjoyed the ridicule that he was given to these, these people in the establishment. And this, these, many of these particular letters, he suggests, have Masonic overtones or subliminal texts that go with them. This is one of them, and it's famous because of its graphics at the top. And he suggests, and I, I, I haven't got time to go through all these again, but some of those symbols are very clear Masonic symbols. And what he's saying is this, is that the guy, there was a guy of course, who wrote this, took care and time over this. 
those pictures aren't just briefly thrown together. They've been done with a, a bit of precision and a bit of skill. They're there for a purpose. There's also some obscure letters going around it. I mean, he tracks that back and he says it belongs to a sort of Masonic breakaway cult, um, which had offices, one of them in Weston, very close to where the woman was killed, the young girl, and one in Bradford, where Johnny Gill was killed. Now, all I'm saying to you here is now, I'm not going to say to you here and now that I think all the letters are genuine, but we do know, some of you will know this very well, that sometimes serial killers have written to the authorities, because they're laughing at them. It's part of their funny little games. And I haven't read the book, and I've read the book four times now. I would say to you that I think he's making some good points on these issues that are worth looking at again. Is it a Masonic link to the killings? Well, I'll leave that up to you again. I know some people have said instantly no. But you should, you should never say instantly no. Somebody's going to make a point that they've got some evidence to support it. We should weigh the evidence up. And if the evidence doesn't support the claim, then we should say no. But I think that is, you know, it, who Jack the Ripper was, obviously the person was never caught, but in the realms of speculation. But if he is an intelligent person, and he was well-to-do, then he could have well be involved in Freemasonry. He could well have written the letters. Was there an establishment cover-up? Well, this is where I, I don't have the expertise on ripperology to answer that question properly, but he, he makes some interesting points in the book about the way some of the uh, coroner's inquests were held, and how some of them were very cut short and abbreviated. Now that's not my area of expertise, so I can't particularly argue that, but I did find some of what he said, once again, worthy of another look, not just dismiss it out of hand. Is Michael Bailey a credible candidate? Well, I'll leave that up to you. I don't think he is, personally. Um, there's too much in the book. I used the line somewhere in an article I wrote in there that, you know, we blur the line between speculation and fact. And I think that's the real problem, well, apart from the language of the book, but once you get over the language of the book, the problem is that he's got a great deal of research in there, and he makes some excellent points, but he goes way off on cul-de-sacs, and he gives wide generalizations for which he has no evidence to support, and as I said, in some cases, the evidence actually points in the other direction. So, it's a book worth reading. It's a book worth thinking about. But, sadly, it's a book that's fatally flawed in many areas because it's full of faults. But that's my opinion. Thank you. Um, we're going to take a break now.
now. Okay, um, we're going to say about 15 minutes. Is that okay? We can come back about 22, uh, 29, and then we'll take questions from the floor. Okay, thank you. Um, well, what we're going to do now is we're going to throw the uh, the microphone, not literally, to the floor. Um, and is there any questions that you'd like to ask the presentation that he's just given? Can you put your hands up um, if you have a question? I'm sure you've all got questions that you want to ask. Ah, oh, great. Rob. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Fantastic talk. And thank you very much for standing at the last minute. Um, I'm quite interested in the your, your mention of the old or more recent forgery in the diary. And in particular, um, the, the points that Keith Skinner came out with. Um, can you tell us a bit about... Um, why Keith came out with those remarks, or he came out with those remarks that you're due 2007. Um, I suppose what I want to know is, was Keith working for Bruce at that time? And because I'm sure that I stayed with Stuart P. Evans and I heard something about this before your event in 2007. I'm not willing to swear to it, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure I heard something about it. Okay, I can, I, I can only tell you what Keeps told me. Um, back in 2007, I organised an event in in Liverpool because it was the uh, 800th year, the founding of, of the, the city of Liverpool, the town as it was. I mean, first got its charter from King John. I was also a member of the Liverpool Cricket Club. I played rugby there, and it was the 200th anniversary of the, of the club. And, I was asked to organise an event and rather naively as a, somebody who used to be a history teacher, um, I thought well, I would do something on James Maybrick and I could be able to, and just got me on a road to ruin and uh, so it catalyst for so many things. And at that event, various people made presentations and one of them was Keith Skinner and he said, and I think he said this without thinking, planning this ahead, he said, and I can't exactly remember the words he used, but he said something like, um, if this was a court of law, something along that line, I could show quite clearly that the diary came out of battle crease. And there was a bit of a hush around the room. I, at that time, I didn't fully understand the implications of what he was saying. But a lot of people were suddenly paid very close attention to that because there's a massive debate about the diary, as, as you all know, probably. Um, the vast majority of people probably in this room think it's a forgery. Um, but there's a question about whether it's, even if it's forgery, it's a new forgery or an old forgery. Keith's answer implied very clearly that it was an old document. Now, he told me since then that at that time, the research that he did when he discovered that information, he was actually working for Bruce Robinson. And therefore, that piece of information was technically owned by Bruce. And therefore, he was not free to disclose that information. But he promised me that it would be disclosed in the next couple of years, which of course it hasn't. And then we were looking for it within the publication of the book. And as I said in my talk, I think that's a major omission in that book. I want to know more about that. I'm sure lots of people in this room want to know more about the, uh, the provenance of that particular document. It's so crucial to so many of the other things. Um, 
It doesn't mean if it is an old document, it was written by Jack the Ripper, of course. It doesn't mean, you know, but it, it does make it a much more interesting and much more valuable document. Um, and I wish, I strongly hope that in the near future, Bruce or Keith or both of them spill the beans. I want to know, I'm sure lots of other people want to know, what does he know about the provenance? How can he show that it's an old document? What evidence has he got? Okay, thanks. Uh, yeah, another question, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it just seems remarkable that someone as discreet as Keith could actually come up with those remarks if at the time he was under contract or an agreement with Bruce, you know, not to, not to reveal anything. I, 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 I think he was honest about that. He said to me that he, he didn't really think that through. He just sent a statement, you know, and then afterwards he, all the repercussions, so uh, but, but, uh, he's, quite, he's been quite clear to me, he said that that information belongs to Bruce and therefore he's not in a position to disclose it because it's his information. But he must have known at the time, with everybody that was there, from Stuart to you know, all the Ripperologists, the main players, that that, by actually saying that, was, you know, chucking the dog on the lines. Yeah, it was yeah, I really... Keith says things without thinking of. <laughs> 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 Lindsay's saying, and I agree with her, Keith sometimes says things, but he does not I, I have lots of conversations with Keith, but sometimes I believe I'm not actually sure what he said. Um, I had a meeting with him once, he came up to see me in Liverpool, and we had a meeting in there, and at the end, I was none the wiser. <laughs> I went home and watched, what, 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 what did you discuss? And I said, well, I'm not really sure, to be honest. But he, he, was, he was like cagey, and that's the way he is a little bit. I, 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 I don't attribute anything malicious to that, it's just the way he is. It's just, it's just, it's just, I think he, he didn't, he said it without thinking. Not realising the implications. Yeah, not realising the implications, I agree with that, yeah. But it, it's certainly, it's information we'd all like to know. Right. Thanks very much. Thanks, Rob. Another question over here. Children, and what was their views on their parents' relationship? Were they brought into question? Okay, that's, a, that's an interesting question. They, they, they may have had two, uh, two children, a boy and a girl. The, the actual boy died quite tragically. He, he swallowed poison when he was working in Canada, and he died when he was in his early 20s. That was just a complete accident. The daughter lived and she died in, uh, not 100% sure of the date of the top of my head, but she lived into the 1960s and 70s, and then she just died um, of actually old age. Whether they were asked, well, when the mum was in prison, they used to, she used to receive for the first five or six years letters from them. And then Michael Maybrick stopped those letters. And I think that they were told quite clearly that their mother was guilty. I think they were brainwashed, basically, for want a better phrase. They were indoctrinated it because they, they actually were adopted by the Dr. Fuller, who was Michael Maybrick's physician and best mate. And they were in constant contact with Michael Maybrick. So they would have had a one-sided view put to them all the time. So, as far as I'm aware, and I've never ever seen it, they never themselves said anything publicly or wrote anything that's in the public domain. But the fact that they never contacted their mother tells themselves you an awful lot, really. The mother came back um, to, to England in the 1920s. She came over for one final thing. And uh, she actually says it, 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 was, it was a tragic thing that they just. She was hoping for a reconciliation and nothing happened. So. I think that the children believed that she was guilty, 
But I think they believe that because that's what they've been continually drip fed by Michael and Dr. Thorne. Question here from Bill at the back, and then I'm going to come to you, Ed, okay? Hi, Chris. Hi. Um, talking about uh, Lord Russell, um, the age uh, 1870 to 1920 have often been called the golden age of advocacy. And anytime you look at a list of the, the great QCs, uh, barristers in that era, Lord Russell of Cologne is always on the list. And one of the reasons he's on the list is because of his outstanding defence of Florence Maverick. Um, as for Ju Justice Stephen, uh, it's generally thought that he was in the early stages um, of a nervous breakdown, but his views were fairly, uh, fairly common amongst the, uh, the judiciary at the time. Because go forward 34 years to 1923, and you've got a similar uh, outburst by the judge at the trial of Edith Thompson, who was convicted wholly against the weight of the evidence and hanged um, for the murder of, uh, of her husband. So it, it seems to have been fairly common uh, amongst the judiciary to grant uh, to, to uh, that uh, anybody who was um, uh, committed adultery uh, was also a potential murderer. Uh, any woman, rather, because they had a few double standards on that. Yes. I, I totally agree with you about Lord Russell. I think, Lord, I, I think um, as I said, there's lots of the Bruce Robinson book I quite like, and some of his research I quite admire, but some of the things in the book I think are wrong. Uh, and it, a vitriolic attack on Lord Russell is uncalled for, unjustified, and badly presented. I think it's a real black spot in the book. As far as the judge is concerned, the judge had a stroke not long before the trial. He was already in the stages of dementia and it was his last big case and he died a couple of years later. Um, I think he comes out of this trial very, very badly. Maybe one simple example of that is that there's a letter which I showed you, the, the, the letter that Florence wrote to her, her the, the person that she had a very brief affair with, Alfred Brealey. At no point was that letter actually read out by anybody, not even the prosecution. But when he was summing up, the judge actually read the full letter out. Something that, and and he, he read the letter and said, any woman who could do this. He made it very, very clear. It, it was a totally biased, slanted summing up. And it definitely had, in, in fact, one of the other things he said was that it, it was very contradictory evidence by the scientific experts and he, he said to them well you can ignore that it's too complicated i didn't fully understand it well, how could he possibly ignore it it's just it's just a crazy thing to say so um he was a distinguished judge but he was certainly at the end of his career and he was failing but he also had some pretty horrible views, like a lot of those people did in those days, and hanging and flogging the brigade. He wasn't a very nice man, and he had some views today that we would find horrific, you know, uh, and some of the people found horrific then, but they were the people they made judges, and we still have some dodgy judges today, don't we? <laughs> um, I, I understood it that um, Lord Michael Maybrick moved to the Isle of Wight, 
that he, uh, he put one of the reasons he moved there was to look after the children. Is that true? He said that he was that his doctor, the doctor yeah, bought that. I thought he. No, no, no. The children, he, the children were adopted by the doctor Fuller. They weren't adopted by Michael Maverick. Uh, I'm sure they spent some time. Well, they all spent some time in this house because um, the other brother Edwin had a daughter, and she spent some time. In, in, in Ryde and she described him as a very cold man and it wasn't a very nice place to be. You know, he, he was a, it, it, Robinson does make this in his book, he said he had a great ego and he did. You know, he thought he was Mr. Perfect and he clearly wasn't, but he didn't um, have any role in terms of looking after the kids, apart from in the immediate aftermath when they were taken off Florence. Uh, and in fact, the tragedy of Florence is that just before the trial, she was in a desperate state. She was, she was, the condition that she was kept in and looked, but not looked after, she was like a prisoner. She was, she was in a terrible, terrible state. Her children were taken off her. This is right the way back now, in May 1889, and she never, ever saw them again, ever, full stop. It's, it's, it's a horrendous story. Never saw her children from the moment they were taken out of her house a week after James died. It's just, uh, it's just pure disgrace. And she did make an effort of reconciliation, as I say, but it never came to anything. But back to um, Bruce Robinson. He gave a uh, talk in uh, Shoreditch Church just after he published his book. I asked him, not in front of people, I asked him um, if he'd ever answer his critics or face his critics to uh, you know, explain or argue his points in front of a, a critical audience. And he, uh, he basically said he wouldn't, and he didn't want to get involved in, in, in the report again after the publication of the book. Is that different from your correspondence with him? Um, well, he's, he's, he's made several, he's made several uh, talks in public, and in fact, I nearly went to one. He was, he was speaking at the, the Hale Life Festival, and we were going to go down and see him, but uh, he actually sold out. So he has done a few open forums, if you like, uh, and there have been some people who have been at those meetings who I know have raised issues with him. But I've actually said to him directly in email, not, not verbally, but in email, all the things I've said to you tonight, I haven't held back. I've said exactly what I've said. And he, He's prepared, he said, well, he's, as you said, his, his correspondence with me, he's prepared to have a chat about them all. So, I wouldn't say his mind was totally close to those sort of things, but I think once you've written the book and you're out there, you need to sort of step back a little bit, don't you? Um, but I'm sure in the future he would be prepared to discuss some of these things, yeah? But he's very, if you've read his book, He's hugely, massively critical of ripperologists as a group of people. And, you know, and, and, and once again, some of the things he says, people like Philip Sutton and some people who are very respected. Things he writes, it goes far too far in his condemnation. And once again, it spoils his book, I think. So, uh, I don't, would he ever speak here? No. It, it, would have to, it would have to be, he would speak, I think, but under his terms. Um, but, yeah, I, I think he might. I think he, he certainly he wants to meet me and have a chat about the things I've raised. Um, because he is going to do a paperback version, as he said, and he is going to do some changes. And I think he will listen to some of the things I say. Whether he will change anything, another matter. But I think he is open to, uh, partly open to 
listening to what people have got to say about his book yes. They're only party. But that's, that's an opinion. Okay, um, we've got a question here in front. Um, do you have a question on this one? No? Okay. Just go back to what uh, Frog was saying. When, with Keith Skinner now for well over 20 years, I know him pretty well. Um, he's, a, he's a highly ethical person um, and doesn't say anything at all like him. Um, I think, I don't think he had any idea what he was setting off when he made that remark um, and the effect it would have and that it would make people angry and so forth. I actually think he said it to be helpful. Um, if, he, if ever you ask him, he will repeat exactly the same form of words, exactly the same form of words that he did back in 2007. So he doesn't go back on that at all. And as you say, I don't remember quite right, but he does. Um, and I think what he was, I think, I mean, I've not discussed this with him, but I think that this is, um, he wanted at the end of that conference to make us a clear pointer that, yes, it came out of that, just to alert people to his knowledge that it is an original document. Not that it's Jack Ripper or even James Mayer, but it is an original document, a contemporary document of that time. And the problem is, and this is probably didn't foresee, but the ethical part of it is that, yes, I mean, Bruce has been working on that book for 14, 15 years, after a, a huge history, publishing history, it was originally Bloomsbury, and he finished up with Harper Collins, He's then managed to write it. So the, the research which Keith did has been going ongoing for all those years. And it is Bruce's research. He paid for it. It's entirely up to Bruce whether it gets released or not. Um, and the other thing which strikes me is that if it, come, if it comes out of battle, Bruce, then the next question is, well, who are we talking about? And that gets you, uh, you know, when you start pointing fingers at people, it begins to quite seriously legal trouble. You can't go around accusing people of theft too easily. So, you know, well, it's not a question of just only releasing the evidence. You've got to think about those kind of implications as well. Yeah, I'd take all that on board. But the point is, is that they've had time to go over all that evidence. And the other thing is, is that um, Chris said that maybe they were holding back that evidence for the paperback versions they got. You know, <coughs> yeah, possibly. Surely, after all these years, you know, if you've got a book coming out, you're going to use that. If, you know, if, if Keith's got that evidence, your wow factor on the publication of that book, you're going to use that evidence. If you're not going to be thinking in hindsight, oh, I know, we're not going to hold that back now, surely you want to make a, a major impact. I don't get I don't get that after all these years you're going to hold back that information and hold it right back to a paperback edition. He has not, he has not actually said that. 
you're making, making assumptions that that's why it isn't releasing the conversion. Um, it's not, it's, it wasn't in the Hallelback. Uh, one, way, one obvious reason why it's not in the Hallelback is because Bruce is at pains throughout that book not to link his book with the diary. Because the diary's been packed, he wants it to stand up in its own right as a book about that Michael paper, so he's distanced himself. And I think that's all it is. But I don't think you should underestimate that um, it's, you know, evidence is vital. Some of them, you know, might have evidence that someone's coming to the moment. You've actually got to be able to prove that to be called a law in the actual court. Because there's the you know, laws of Bible and the rest of it. He says he can do it. Pardon? He says he can do it. No, he didn't say that. He said, he didn't say that he could prove it. I think we, we, we kept it silly to get back in the actual words. There was not, it was like in his opinion. If it were to be called a law, then it would, it would be proved. That's his opinion. But if you go slinging accusations at people, Without being in the court of law, that is liable. And that is a very serious offence. Can you just make a, a point, though, on I think. Bruce Robinson is actually inconsistent on the diary in the sense that what he says is, you're quite right, he doesn't want to discuss it, he says, because he doesn't think it was written by James Maybrick. It's a forgery. However, it is quite an important part of his overall book in the sense that he said it's an old document and that certain bits within it have to be written by somebody who knew, had some inside information. And he suggests that it was therefore written by Michael Maybrick. So on the one, you say, you're sort of saying two opposites, if you like. You're saying that the diary is a forgery and it's not important and we shouldn't be discussing it. However, it's a key part of his whole conspiracy view that this is an important part of that. That the, key, the diary was written by Michael and Michael is Jack the Ripper, therefore de facto. Although it was written to frame James, it's still written by Jack the Ripper. So we're saying two opposites. So you can't, it's a difficult circle to square that one. Um, or I, I'm not saying it's genuine, or I am interested if it is an old book. I do think, as I said during the talk, it makes it a much more interesting document. And you can't, and it's been dismissed as a crude forgery. Quite a few people said that. Something in his book calls it a crude forgery that we can dismiss. Well, if it's an old, book that it's not a modern group forgery and I know a lot of people in this room don't like James Maybrick as a candidate, don't see him as a real genuine candidate. However, this book I think reopens that debate. Not a lot of people in this room, I know lots of people will like that, but I think it might. Okay, do we have any further questions for um, our guest speaker tonight? Well, yes, we have one. Another one, Ed, go ahead. You said that um, he proved the uh, provenance of the term Jewish, um, which Paul Begg had been criticising for in the, um, in the forums. But actually, did he, he prove the provenance of the, of the Jubilee, Jubilee, Jubilee thing, but not the, not Jewish? Is he, his assumption is that 
it's a made up, the Jewish terms are made up thing, a shorthand thing that hasn't got any provenance, but nevertheless Warren would have recognised based on it being Jubilee, 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 whatever that thing is, not the term Jewish itself. Once again, this isn't my area of expertise. I can only say what he says. He says that this term was a collective name for these three Jewish assassins. I think that is accepted. What Paul Beck says, not that it wasn't, it's not a fact, but it wasn't a fact at that particular time. I think he, I can't remember the exact date he uses, he said it wasn't known at that time. But Bruce Robinson shows, I think quite conclusively, that it was a term that was contemporary with the 1880s, and it was in everyday use, well not in everyday use, but, but among those people who were into all that cult, it was known. And one thing about Sir Charles Warren, that he was into it big time. He was an archaeologist who'd spent a big chunk of his life in the, in the Holy Land, digging up these sort of uh, artifacts and phrases, and uh, he was well versed in it. And if it did have any of those Masonic uh, connotations, Sir Charles Warren would have got it straight away. Now, I'm not saying, it, you know, it, it's speculation still, isn't it? I, mean, I, 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 can't, I couldn't prove it, Bruce couldn't prove it. But I do think it's an interesting assertion, uh, and it's much more credible than some of his other assertions, which I think are very dubious. But I, 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 that's not one I would dismiss. I wouldn't say I agree with it necessarily, but I do think he does provide some evidence to support that particular assertion. Hello. Hi. I hate doing this. Um, do you think Bruce has, has obviously he must have read Stephen Knight's book? Louder, please. Louder, please. Um, I wonder if Bruce has, uh, must have read Stephen Knight's book because Stephen Knight went into this jubilee, jubilum, jubilee, whatever they're called, um, as being Jewish, very much so, and also some of the other things in his book. Bruce's book about the Masonic pixels and stuff were things that Stephen Knight had already brought up in his book which was published years ago. 76. Thank you. Apparently 76. You're quite right, he does, he does mention the Stephen Knight book and he actually says that Stephen Knight should have a lot more praise than he has had, but he also says that Stephen Knight was set up uh, and that he was given a few bomb steers and therefore the whole notion of Freemasonry being involved is therefore discredited with Stephen Knight. And what he tries to do is come back from that. He says Stephen Knight does make some mistakes in some of his assertions. However, there is a Masonic link. Um, now, I'm not saying, that that's not part of, I, I'm not sure about that. I'm not really qualified enough to say a definitive yes or no. But what I am saying, he makes some interesting suggestions that are well worth investigating more thoroughly. Uh, and for that particular section of the book, he does provide much more substance than for some of his other, frankly, foolish assertions. <coughs> okay, well, unless there's any more questions, um, I think we'll finish up here. So can you please say thanks again to Chris Jones. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thank you all of you for coming out tonight. It's a blustery, windy, wet night. Saucy Jack himself may not make a, an effort on a night like this. And also the tube strike doesn't actually help either, so thanks for coming.
And that was Rippercast, bringing you Chris Jones's presentation to the February 2016 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. Bruce and Florence, Busting the Conspiracy. If you would like more information on this topic, you can visit Chris Jones's website, jamesmaybrook.org. And if you're interested in finding out more about the Whitechapel Society, membership, meetings, or their journal, please go to whitechapelsociety.com. I'd like to again thank the committee of the Whitechapel Society, Steve Ratty, and Mark Ripper for making this episode in particular possible. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.